0: Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. One day Jesus saw a vast crowd of people that were gathering to hear him speak. So he went up onto the slope of a nearby hill and sat down. With his followers and his disciples spread over the hillside around him he opened his mouth and began to teach them. This is how Matthew introduces his section of his gospel account that we've come to know as the Sermon on the Mount. And over the next few months, and if it took us two years to get through Mark, I'm thinking it's going to take us a good 12 months just to get through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be exploring in depth and in detail uh, the words that Jesus spoke as he sat there on that hillside and taught those who gathered to hear him. Are you excited about that? I'm excited about it. I don't know if you've had a chance to, um, as Dave invited us to for the last few weeks, to actually read through Matthews chapter 5, 6 and 7. Please, I encourage you to do that. Do it every day if you can. Do it in different translations. Soak in that message and prepare your hearts to be, um, I'm going to call it, to be wowed the words that come out of Yeshua Messiah's mouth. And that's where we're heading today. Are you excited about that? I, I certainly am. Good, let's go. You see, I really believe this is going to be a journey of discovery, of, of real revelation and real insight for us as a church and as a people who follow Jesus. Um, and I think for some of us, the words that Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, are just they're really going to encourage our faith. They're going to bolster us and build us up and lift us up as we, as we hear them and dwell on them and, and soak in them and talk about them with one another and, and work out what it means to live them out. As we discover together what it means to, to not just hear from him, but to grow with him and in him as followers of Jesus. For some of us, and perhaps all of these might apply to you, as I think they're going to to me, but for some of us, this series actually is going to reveal new insights and learnings, new revelations in regard to what being a follower of Jesus actually really looks like. What does it really mean? And my suspicion, my gut feeling is that, is that for many of us, this sermon on a hillside is going to come as a hammer blow. It's going to hit us really hard. And, I, and you know what? I hope that it does. Because I think sometimes when we come to the all too familiar pieces of scripture, as I've often said, we read them but we don't listen. We don't hear because we're so familiar. I truly believe that if we dare to really listen and act on what we hear, Jesus' words are going to radically change the way we live as followers of Jesus. Are you up for that? Oh good, because I hope so, because we're going to dive straight in this morning. (laughs) That's where we're going in the next few months and I'm totally excited about that. But before we do, um, welcome to the service this morning. Uh, My name's Matt. It's my privilege to uh, uh, serve in this beautiful church as a part of the uh, teaching team. Um, And uh, yeah, as I've said, it's a real privilege to be able to share the Word of God uh, with a family this morning. Before we jump straight into Matthew chapter 5, which is what we're going to do today, um, I thought it would be good if we just backed up a little and considered uh, just some of the things that are going on around Jesus at the time when he sits down on the hillside and begins to teach those who are following him. Unlike Luke or John who I think do a reasonably good job of telling the, as, as if I'm an expert on it, but I think they do a reasonably good job on telling the story of Jesus in a chronological order, especially, especially Luke. If you want to get a sense of the timeline of Jesus' ministry, the geography and the order that things happen, go, go to Luke and study the story there. But unlike uh, Luke or John, Matthew tends to ditch chronology in order of specific themes which is important for us to know as we come to this part of uh, the New Testament. If we were to put Matthew and Luke side by side, for example, uh, we would soon discover that Matthew's uh, discussion of the account of Jesus's ministry and his teachings, they really jump all over the place. And if you were to look at a, a linear Bible that puts the two Gospels side by side, you'd soon discover that and when you first discover that, it can be a little like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? But don't stress, it's just the way Matthew writes. You see, it's not really a big issue for Matthew to write this way because remember, Matthew is writing predominantly to a, a Jewish audience. And for them, uh, generally speaking, chronology is not as important as ideas or themes. And so Matthew groups what he has to say about the life and ministry of Jesus according more to themes than to timeline. Does that kind of make sense? That's, that's just to give you a bit of background. You see, the purpose for Matthew writing his gospel is to convince the Jews that this, that, that this Jesus, Yeshua Messiah, is the one promised in the, in the Old Testament writings. He is the promised one of God who is, is to come. He is the, the Messiah. He is Emmanuel, God with them. And so that's one of his core purposes for writing his gospel. After nearly 400 years of total silence from God, not speaking to his people through the prophets or through any other means, so to speak, Matthew's gospel dramatically announces the arrival of Emmanuel. Like a light flipped on in a dark room. Have you ever done that? It's it's beyond blinding, it's all encompassing. That's what this message, this declaration, we've been talking about, this proclamation of the coming of the Messiah was like a light flipping on in a dark room. This news that God has shown up in this world, that he is with us, Emmanuel, it's a radical, radical turning point in the story of God. And now we find Jesus some years after his birth, this Jesus of Nazareth, this son of Joseph and Mary, this rabbi who doesn't seem to quite play by the rules. He's really about to crank things up in terms of his ministry and his teaching. So let's just take a quick snapshot look at what Jesus has been up to, leading up to his delivery of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 to 11. We're going to go back to Matthew 4 before we go to Matthew chapter 5. I guess that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to have a look in your Bible, you can follow along, but I'll just kind of bullet point it. You see, after his baptism by John, Jesus goes into the wilderness where he's, he is tempted by the accuser. We know that story quite well. After this, Matthew tells us that Jesus moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. Now, remember how I said that in, in Matthew's gospel, he doesn't always record the life of Jesus chronologically? Well, he also has a habit of missing huge chunks of time. <laughs> you see, between Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, There's a whole heap of stuff that Jesus is doing. He meets the first disciples who start following him. He turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He goes to Jerusalem and cleanses the temple for the first time. Whilst he's there, he meets Nicodemus secretly at night. He oversees the disciples as they begin baptising people in Judah. Whilst he's there, and Matthew picks this up in chapter 4, verse 12, he learns that his cousin John has been imprisoned by Herod. So he makes the trip north again, back towards his hometown. Along the way, he stops in Samaria and meets the Samaritan woman at the well. From there, he returns to Nazareth, his hometown, where we read that he's rejected by his own people. From there, he skips across to Cana a second time, where he meets the official official who's travelled to Cana from Capernaum to ask Jesus if he can heal his son. And, of course, Jesus does that by proxy. He just speaks the words. And when the guy gets back to Capernaum, he discovers that his son's been healed. And then just some time after that, Jesus moves and sets up camp in Capernaum. He leaves Nazareth and goes to live and begin ministry in Capernaum. And this is where Matthew picks up his account. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, when Jesus heard that John the baptiser had been thrown into prison, he went back to Galilee and then all that stuff happened. And then Jesus moved from Nazareth to make his home in Capernaum, which is by the lake Galilee and in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. He did this to make the prophecy of Isaiah come true. This is interesting. It comes from Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 2. Listen, you who live in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, along the road to the sea and on the other side of the Jordan and Galilee, the land of the non-Jewish peoples, you who spend your days shrouded in darkness can now say, "We have seen a brilliant light." Wow. And those who live in the dark shadow land of death can now say, "A dawning light is arising on us." What a prophecy. And Jesus fulfills it, every word. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to proclaim his message with these words. Keep turning away from your sins and come back to God, for heaven's kingdom realm is now accessible. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, or quite literally, Turn away from your life of sin and turn toward God because his kingdom is so close, you can actually touch it. Wow. Turn away from your life of sin and turn towards God because his kingdom is so close, you can touch it. How cool is that? This is where we're heading in this series. I'm super excited about it. I might say that a few times. This proclamation, here's this word again, this proclamation marks the beginning of a new phase in Jesus' public ministry. From this very point forward, Jesus' call to follow him becomes super clear. His teaching becomes so much more focused. His ministry amongst needy people becomes oh so much more noticeable. To the point where, from this point forward, he actually starts to attract not just criticism, but death threats from the religious leaders. You see, people are beginning to notice that there is something radically different about this teacher. There's something different about him. Again, Matthew skips over huge chunks of time, as he'd want to do, pausing only to include the calling of the four fishermen, Peter, Andrew, James and John. And between Matthew's chapter 4, are you still with me in Matthew chapter 4? Because I want to show you something really interesting here. Between Matthew chapter 4, 17 and Matthew chapter 4, 23, Jesus actually does a whole heap more of miracles and teachings. Matthew just doesn't record them for us. So after calling the four fishermen, he healed a demon-possessed man in the synagogue at Capernaum. Also in Capernaum, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed large crowds of people who'd who'd come to see him to find healing. He preached in the synagogues all around Galilee. He kind of went on a bit of a preaching tour, if you can put it that way. He healed lepers. He healed paralytics. He called Matthew or Levi, the tax collector, to follow him and then had dinner with Matthew and all his scaly mates where he taught in parables. Parables. Then he went south to Jerusalem for Passover. Whilst he was there, he healed the paralysed man at the pool of Bethesda. I, I spoke about that on Friday a week ago with the young people. Caused quite a stir. <laughs> the religious leaders were not impressed. Not at all. He heads north again, back up towards his hometown. And on, on a Sabbath, mind you, thank you very much, he heals a man who has a crippled hand. And the religious leaders are actually saying now to one another, What are we going to do with this guy? We've got to get rid of him. <laughs> the pressure's on, the heat is starting to rise. So Jesus withdraws to the Sea of Galilee with his disciples for some rest and relaxation, I guess, just to spend some time with them, to pray with them, and to have some time out. But they don't get a rest because crowds and crowds and crowds of people have somehow discovered where Jesus has gone and they're running to his position. To find, to find healing and release and freedom. And this is where Matthew picks up the story again. Matthew chapter 4 verse 23. I hope this is giving you a picture of what's going on here. Matthew chapter 4, 23, Jesus ministered from place to place throughout the whole province of Galilee. He taught in the synagogues, preaching the hope of the kingdom realm and healing every kind of sickness and disease among the people. His fame spread everywhere. Many people who were in pain and suffering and with every kind of illness were brought to Jesus for their healing. Epileptics, paralytics, those who were tormented by demonic powers, all set free. All set free. Everyone who was brought to Jesus was healed. Verse 25, this resulted in massive crowds of people following him, including people from Galilee, Jerusalem, the land of Judah, the region of the ten cities known as the Decapolis, and beyond the Jordan River. Can you picture the scene? Can you picture it? Talk about influencer. Hello? (laughs) Hello? People are coming from every direction to see Jesus. I don't, are you geographically challenged? I'm not. I can usually find my... It's true. Don't ask my wife, but it's true. I can usually find my way around anywhere just because I have a mental picture of the map of the state in which we live. I've done a fair bit of travelling. So if you're not good geographically, I'll try and put it in a way that makes sense. So, do you know where Capel is? A little town south of Bunbury, but before Busseldon. So if you start at Capel and head north, kind of up the coastal plain to maybe Bullsbrook, perhaps Jinjin, you know where that is, right? I'm not going to give you kilometres because I don't really know. But. And then if you were to take that area and head east to perhaps York or Northam, at the most extreme eastness boundary, all that area is the area that people are coming to meet Jesus from. Because that's roughly the size of where he's doing ministry and preaching. Down in Jerusalem in the south and up at Capernaum in the north and across to the coast to see... Do you get the picture? It's like he's based himself in Vic Park and he's travelling all the way to Capel to do ministry and teaching and he's travelling all the way up to Bullsbrook and he's going all the way out to Northern New York and everyone who's experienced and heard his teaching are flocking to find him. They don't have Forest Freeway... They're, they're walking they're riding donkeys and maybe camels if they've got some but they're walking camping and walking and camping and walking just to find him because they desperately desperately want to be near this teacher this Yeshua Messiah do you get the picture so who are these people Who are these people and why are they so desperate to meet Jesus? You know, the answer to that question is actually a very important one for us this morning and as we commence this series over the next few months because it actually gives us a context and a meaning to the nature of what Jesus is about to say. Does that make sense? You see, up until this point in history... There'd been a marked separation between those who belonged to God's chosen people and those who didn't. God's people, and and rightly so, saw themselves as blessed because God's favour was on them. God himself blessed his people and put his favour on them. You can see that in the Old Testament narrative. They were his blessed people. They had his favour. He was in relationship with them and, and they were supposed to be in relationship with him. But as we learned in our studies of of Ephesians, we're going back to Ephesians. Is that all right? I'm glad we did the study together because it really speaks into what Jesus is about to say. But as we, if you will remember from our study in Ephesians, God removed that divide through Jesus. Do you remember that? I'm sure you do, but I'm just going to remind you anyway. Ephesians 1 verse 12. God's purpose was that we Jews who, remember, Paul is writing this some 50, 60 years after the Sermon on the Mount. So it's in, it's in kind of it's like it's in hindsight, if that makes sense. So it's already happened. But it speaks to what's going on. God's purpose that, that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God's, God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit who he promised long ago. Ephesians 2.11, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship amongst the people of Israel. You did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 3.6, and this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Equally. Wow. Both, listen to this, both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Jesus Christ. Do you see what he said there? If you're a follower of Jesus, then God blesses you because you follow Jesus. You are blessed by God for faith in his son and the work of the cross, and you know how it goes. Why did God do all this? Again, Ephesians 3.10. I'm glad you're enjoying having your memory memory reminded. (laughs) Listen to this. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. So why are all these people flocking to meet Jesus? Because in a world where darkness and oppression are suppressing human flourishing... Jesus shines a very bright light of hope. Do you see that? A very bright light of hope. This Jesus of Nazareth, he is different. His words and his actions, they are different. They demonstrate a different way of being human, a different way of living, a different existence to what they've been existing in. And in stark contrast to what the kingdoms of the world have to offer, the kingdom of heaven offers hope and restoration and wholeness and healing and peace to a hurting and a broken people. No matter what their nationality, no matter what their background, no matter what their status. And that's the key. That's the key, I think, to understanding what Jesus is about to say. Not just in the Beatitudes, but in the whole Sermon on the Mount. This is a message for everyone. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. Turn away from your life of sin and turn toward God because his kingdom is so close. You can touch it. I've been trying to picture this idea in my head. Um, And it's a little bit complicated because Matthew also talks about heaven in the sense of the place where we go in eternity. But as you're about to discover, and and hopefully I can communicate this well, that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. So you have to understand that in Matthew, heaven is two things. And the context tells you which, which it is that Matthew is talking about. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But what a concept. God chooses to use broken people like you and me to reveal his power and his glory, inviting us to join with him as active participants. Get that, as active participants in the restoration of our broken world. Not in the future. But in the now, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's so close you can touch it. Do you, do you see that? The kingdom, of heaven is, the kingdom of heaven is here. You can reach out and grab hold of it. You can join with God in what he's doing to restore a broken humanity. And he goes on to talk about who those people are that can do that. See, the kingdom of heaven is not some faraway place. It's not somewhere where you go, although, as I just said, there is the concept of a place where we go, but it's not what we're talking about here. It's not an external reward for all the good works that you've done, uh, that, that you earn your way into. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven exists in the here and now, and what Jesus is saying is that it's available for all who will reach out and take hold of it. This is a radically powerful and new teaching. And I actually believe it's the lens through which we have to view, especially not just the Beatitudes, but the whole Sermon on the Mount. So let's have a look at the first Beatitude, because that's actually the first Beatitude um, that kind of, I think, mistakenly gives us perhaps this idea that God is talking about a future kingdom. I want to show you why that's not the case so we're going to go eventually glad we're going eventually now into Matthew chapter 5 which is where we're supposed to be and we're going to have a look at um in particular we're going to focus on on verse 3 before we do that let's talk about what it means to be blessed I keep wanting to say blessed it sounds good blessed but blessed The Greek word is, um, and I'm not even going to apologise for pronunciation, the Greek word is makarios, and it's a difficult word to translate well into a single English word. If only it was that easy, right? (laughs) It'd make life so much easier. But to be blessed literally means to be in a state of bliss. Hmm, That's a bit different, isn't it? To be in a state of bliss, or perhaps more accurately, to be fully satisfied fully satisfied in a human sense and this doesn't really capture the full meaning of it but I was thinking about what's a tangible expression of that in my own life so I can get my my sometimes thick head around these ideas is is you know often you'll hear someone say um I've I've got a a, a beautiful I've got a wife and a family and a home and a job and I'm just a blessed person because in one sense I'm fully satisfied I've got everything that I need And, and it's kind of doesn't really kind of grab the fullness of the idea but it hints at it I'm blessed because I've got everything that I need. I'm I'm happy because everything is working good. Um, It's kind of like that, but that's just a very watered down kind of idea. In a biblical sense, an individual or a group of people, in the case of the nation of Israel, is pronounced blessed when, when God is present and involved in their life. It has the idea of a people living or a person living before God because he is at work in your life, directing and guiding your steps and um, directing your life according to his divine purpose. That's what it means to be blessed by God. However, Jesus didn't speak Greek. Well, he might have spoken Greek, but when he delivered the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke Aramaic. And the Aramaic word for blessed builds on the Greek word, although they're not the same language, but the idea builds on one another. The Aramaic word for blessed is tuayon, And inbuilt into this word is the idea that the best that a person or place has to offer so the very best of someone or something that they can offer you in every aspect of your well-being and your success and beauty and joy and all of those things, the very best that a place or a person has to offer is available to you because of the relationship you have with the one bestowing the blessing. Whew. Did you hear that? Do I need to repeat? Like, let me just say it again. Tuweun. <laughs> has this idea that the very best that a personal place has to offer in every aspect is available to you because of the relationship you have with the one who bestows the blessing. Again, I struggle to find an everyday example of this, so I just kind of let my imagination run wild. Maybe I'm wishful thinking a little bit. But I imagine that one of you owns a really fantastic, fabulous holiday house on Geograph Bay. There's no hints there, by the way. (laughs) And it's right on the beach, and it has private access to those turquoise waters. There's a boat that I'm allowed to use. I can use your barbecue. In fact, if we stay at your fantastic, beautiful Bayside mansion, you give us permission to make it our own. Anything that is in that property and belongs to that property that belongs to you is mine to use however I wish with your blessing. It's available to me because you, the owner, said so. Does that make sense? Yeah. Wow, sign me up. I'll be out the front early later. <laughs> but do, do, you get the, do you get the kind of meaning? Yeah, right. I am blessed because you bless me, and with that blessing comes all your stuff, <laughs> the best of all you have to offer. Not because you're well off and... Not even because you're generous, but it's mine because you allow it to be. It's freely mine to use. You bless me with... I I think I've made the point, right? You, You can tell where I'm going with this, can't you? Shame on me. But it's that kind of thing. It's that kind of thing. So in other words, spiritually speaking... Uh, To be blessed means that we are able to enjoy every aspect of all that God has to offer us because of the relationship we have through him, because of Jesus. That's what it means to be blessed by God. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. We've talked about this before, right? You know the story of the prodigal son, the son goes away, comes back, and the other son, the older son, has a bit of a pity party about, well, what about me? What about me? And the father says but everything I have is already yours. You're already blessed because you're my son and all that I own is already yours. It's that concept. Because of our relationship, it belongs to you. That's deep. That's soul-stirringly deep. When you actually stop and think about it. So, when it comes to understanding these beatitudes or these blessings, I really think that we need to consider how they fit into the larger picture of what Jesus is actually talking about and who he's talking to, as I said before, especially in terms of what it means to be active participants in the kingdom of heaven here on earth. In the light of this, we're getting there slowly. In the light of this, let's look at the first beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It's very familiar. You will have heard it a million times. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's so simple. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, traditionally, we tend to read the beatitude in one of two ways. Either firstly, as a special form of Christian ethic... And what I mean by that is this, is, is that it describes to us how we are to behave in order to be blessed people or really special people or to find favour with God. The other way we tend to read it, and I think this is where the damage comes in our understanding of what kingdom of heaven actually means, is, is we tend to read it as a set of rules that we must keep in order to enter the kingdom of heaven when we die. Have you ever thought of them that way? I certainly have in the past thought of them that way. You know if you're blessed if you're poor, because then you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's not what Jesus is saying. I'm going to clarify that with a little little uh, with a writer, and I don't mean a Dave writer. I mean uh, uh, is it Luke's gospel? Um, he actually he says, "Blessed are the poor." for they will enter the kingdom of heaven, or for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom, he might use kingdom of God. Interesting, only Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven. I think the phrase kingdom of heaven is used 32 or 36 times in the Bible, and all 32 or 36 times is in Matthew. And the reason for that is quite simple. He's writing to a Jewish audience, and they won't use the name God. So instead of saying kingdom of God, they use kingdom of heaven. But it means the same thing. The, God's kingdom, or heaven's kingdom. The realm of God is probably a better translation the rule and realm of God, or the rule and realm of heaven. But Jesus isn't saying that that's what this blessing means. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven does not mean you will go to heaven when you die, if you do this, this or this. It means that heaven's kingdom realm will begin to show itself through your life. You see, the Beatitudes are not about how to behave so that God will be nice to us. That's a works mentality. They are about a different way of living and that's entirely different. That's a radical idea. Not just a different way of living, but a way of living that changes the world on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. This new rule, this kingdom, uh, this heaven's kingdom realm here on earth, it's about Jesus bringing change and restoration and healing and peace through a kingdom-minded people. And when you view the Beatitudes through the lens of what it means to be in union with God, when when you view them through the lens of what it means to be participating with him in seeing a broken world restored to wholeness, you begin to see them not as a set of rules and not even as a moral code that needs to be followed, but as an agenda for kingdom-minded people. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is a call to see those who would follow Jesus take up their vocation of being light to the world and salt to the earth. That's that's what it's about when you step back and look at the bigger picture. In other words, as the church, as the church, we are the ones through whom Jesus' kingdom vision is to become a reality in the world. Wow. Does that change how you see the Beatitudes? I, ho- I hope it does. And again, perhaps for another time, but you know when we talk about fruit of the Spirit, we talk about the nine, nine fruit, and we often break them down in, individually to study them, and there's great benefit in that. But as you all know, really, it's, it's not plural, it's singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit is all these things. You, you can't pick and choose. It's not like a fruit salad minus mango. Okay? Actually, I think the Beatitudes work in a similar way. They're not individual things where you can pick and choose. They're all one unit. It's, it's like a stained glass window. All the color, little different coloured panels fit together to form one picture. Although the individual coloured panels, if you know anything about iconography, have special meaning. And it's interesting and helpful to know those meanings. It's the whole picture that matters. It's like a piece of music, you know, with 10 different tracks in it. All the tracks are different, but drop one of those tracks out and it's not complete. Do you know what, like, do you get the picture? We should be viewing the Beatitudes, I believe, as one unit. Although, as we will do, it's helpful to study them individually and learn something from them. We have to keep in mind that they belong to a bigger picture. So who are the poor in spirit? What does that even mean? Well, there are actually two Greek words that translate into... There's probably more, but there's two that I've found that translate into our English word poor. One is penes, which means poor, but able to help oneself. And it has the idea of being poor, but with means. So there are a lot of people who in, the, in the world who are poor. And I, that, you know... I, I say this with all sensitivity, but, like... No one in this room falls into this category probably because we live in Australia, but there are so many people around the world who are desperately poor, but they don't go without necessarily. They work, they can earn money for food, they've got basics. Do you know what I'm saying? Like They're poor, but they have some means. It's interesting actually often that they're quite content. (laughs) that's in my observation in travelling in third world countries so that's one use of the meaning of the word poor Uh, poor but able to help oneself poor but with means the other word is um, which actually means helpless and it has this connotation poor and without means and I've I've met some communities where that is tragically true They have no means of food or water. Even if they could work, it wouldn't help. They're desperately, desperately poor. And there's actually no chance of them doing anything to help their situation. That's the type of poor. That's the word Jesus is using when he uses the word poor here. Interestingly, in the other gospel as well, where it says, uh, blessed are the poor, um, for theirs is the kingdom of, of God. It's the same word there as well. Desperately poor. Poor without means. And quite literally what Jesus is saying is this, he's saying you are blessed, you are fully satisfied and experiencing the best that God has for you when you understand that you are, in and of yourself, spiritually helpless. That's what poor in spirit means. It's combining two words, poor and spirit, and it's talking about when you understand that you are so impoverished in and of yourself spiritually that there is nothing you can do to help yourself You're blessed. That's a hard word. So, who is the kingdom of heaven for? Those who know that they can do nothing to enter into it, excepting by the grace of God. That's who the kingdom of heaven is for. Are you okay with that definition? That's good teaching, right there, as they would say. It's biblically sound, right? You, and I could take you to lots of places in the scripture which talk about this idea. I could also show you from scripture uh, the opposite of that where Jesus, Jesus and the scriptures actually teach quite clearly that whether you're rich or poor makes no difference to God the kingdom of heaven is for those who believe. So it's not just, the, it's not, you don't have to be poor to enter into the kingdom of heaven it's poor in spirit. It's a contrite heart. It's an attitude of humility. It's a, deep, it's a deep spiritual understanding that, you know what, God? There is nothing that I am able to do, even if I wanted to. That could bring me into your kingdom. Only because of my relationship with you is it possible. So that's, so that's good. And there are example after example after example, right through the Bible narrative. Um, and we won't have time to look at any of them, really, of people that understood their utter dependence on God to live in a way that honoured him. They knew that without him, they amounted to nothing. Jesus himself praised those who came to him in humility, knowing that it was only God who could help them live a meaningful and restored life. Andrew, you can come now if you want. Shall we go deeper? Are you up for going a bit deeper? Oh, good, you're going to make me sweat even more. <laughs> because poor in spirit actually means more than that. Because remember, Jesus wasn't speaking Greek. He was speaking Aramaic. You want to go there? Yeah. Yeah. The word for poor in Aramaic in verse 3 is miskanah. And it's actually an Aramaic word that means, and get this... <laughs> One who voluntarily gives up all material things in order to gain spiritual benefit. One who voluntarily gives up all material things for spiritual benefit. In other words, becoming materially poor in order to become spiritually rich. But it goes deeper than that. Do you want to go there? Yeah. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> Because I don't want you to run off and sell all your worldly possessions, because I need to clarify the context of this word "miskana." because it's actually used to describe parents. Got any parents in the room? You'll understand this concept. I'm sure you will. I won't ask you to put up your hand. <laughs> you see, miscarna is actually a phrase that's used to describe parents who voluntarily make themselves less prosperous for the sake of their children. Do you know that? You've been there as a parent, surely. We all have at some degree, maybe not maybe not to the ends of the world, but you know in life as a parent there are times when you have to put aside your own dreams and ambitions, perhaps. There are things that you might like to buy and put in the toy shed that you know you just simply can't be wasting money on because you've got to clothe and feed and, and educate your children. So you put aside those things that you would like in order to help them become prosperous and healthy. And do you know what I'm talking about? And again it sounds weird saying that because we live in such a blessed and lucky country but we still do it at some level you understand what I'm talking about maybe you have a parent who worked so hard all their life just worked themselves to the bone so that you could go to school so you could have clothes and I know for a lot of kids that doesn't happen and that's the tragedy but this that's the concept that we're talking about here Parents who go without things they would like in order to provide the things that their children need. You see, in Eastern culture, the parents worked hard and made sacrifices for the sake of their children. And in return, in return, here's the relationship aspect, in return, the children later in life made, worked hard and made sacrifices in order to provide for their elderly parents. You see the concept? It's a choosing to put yourself Last or least in order to bless someone else. And this is this idea of, we translate it into a spiritual sense. This is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about becoming spiritually poor. This is the type of poverty that Jesus is referring to. But there's more. Do you want to go deeper? (laughs) Hello. When Miscana is coupled with the Aramaic word for spirit what we actually have is a very common Aramaic idiom. Do you remember what an idiom is? We talked about this last year. An idiom is a, a phrase or a saying that's specific to a certain, certain culture or time and it has meaning to those people because they understand it. But perhaps to outsiders, doesn't necessarily become at first very clear. This, this idiom, poor in spirit, has the idea of someone who is so hungry to know God and to have a relationship with him that material things no longer have any value to them. They're willing to give it all up in order to serve God. Like a parent would for a child and then a child for a parent. Poor in spirit. You are blessed if you have an attitude of wanting to give everything up in order to honour and serve God. Because when you do that, you're going to discover so quickly that the kingdom of heaven is just right there and you can grasp hold of it. Not in the future. Yes, in the future, but in the now. I'm making a puddle. I might be all off. someone who is so hungry to know God and have a relationship with him that material things have no value to them you know what is central to that idea is the notion of alignment and this is caught up in the Aramaic word for spirit and we don't even have time to go into that it's a fascinating study but it has caught up in this idea this notion of alignment of being in tune with God and what he is doing in the world in fact the picture is a little bit like and I, I had trouble even grasping this It's like when you enter into a relationship that is so deep that you actually share the breath of God. That the Spirit in you breathes as you breathe. It's like being in a bubble with Him. You you share His being, His entity, his, His power, His spirit, His breath, His love, His joy, His peace. Everything that is available to you because God is God, you share because you enter into this relationship. You are poor in spirit. You give up everything that you think is rightfully yours in favour of following and serving Him. And in return, you are blessed. You are blessed in return. You have everything now available to you that God has to offer. Everything. Is that cool or what? I don't really know how to end this. Um, I, I like to paraphrase stuff in words that make sense to me. Um, so I'm going to do, I'm going to close with with my paraphrase of what I think Jesus is saying here and I trust it will be a blessing and I know it's going to be a challenge to you. I'm just going to read it to you and leave it with you and I pray that you pray it through during the week. But if I could paraphrase what I think Jesus is saying to us in verse three in the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount given, it would be something like this. Heaven's kingdom realm breaks into the world through you and around you when you give up everything to pursue a life focused on putting God first. Learning to breathe and listen, to walk and love in tune with the spirit that is within you. This is the way. Follow me. Heaven's kingdom realm breaks into the world through you and around you. When you give up everything to pursue a life focused on putting God first, learning to breathe and listen, walk and love, in tune with the Spirit within you. This is the way. Follow me. Father, we thank you for your word. (laughs) Wow. How many times have we read that passage? We thank you for your word, which speaks directly to our heart challenges our thinking it causes us to realign ourselves with who you are and what you're doing and I pray as much for myself as for my friends gathered here that as we contemplate and meditate this particular word that you would allow it to immerse that we would not just be immersed in it but you would allow it to penetrate into the very very deepest corners of our being that we might even begin to glimpse what it means to follow you with a whole heart And the blessing that comes with that as we see your kingdom, your kingdom realm, the power of your kingdom unleashed, not just in us, but around us. As we see people healed and restored and brought back to life because of what you're doing through your church. We want to be a church like that. Amen.